Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to the History of England, episode 26, William Rufus, Normandy and the First Crusade. Last week, we reached the slightly ignoble end of one of England's most celebrated kings, William the Conqueror. Before he died, William had demonstrated his lack of sentiment by sending his second and favourite son, William, away from his bedside and off to England, so that he could claim his inheritance before Robert Curthose could get in his way. Physically, William was a thick-set man with yellow hair and a red face, hence his nickname Rufus. He had an open countenance with different coloured eyes, he was not particularly tall, and he'd acquired his father's enormous strength and also his gut. Poor old William Rufus traditionally hasn't had a very good press. So, for example, I quote from A.L. Poole, a professor at Oxford in 1951. He wrote, From the moral standpoint, William was probably the worst king that has occupied the throne of England. Actually, I do think this judgment is quite interesting as a piece of historiography. We do try, don't we, to hold on to objectivity as a guiding principle in history. But however hard we try, we can't help the values of our age influencing us. Paul's harsh judgment was at least partly based on Rufus's blasphemous and irreverent attitude to the church, and quite possibly on the fact that Rufus was probably homosexual. So the record has been significantly rectified by more recent historians and placed more in context but certainly the contemporary chronicles are by no means positive. On his death in 1099, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle let rip with comments such as He was harsh and fierce with his men, his land and all his neighbours. He was ever agreeable to evil men's advice. God's churches he oppressed, therefore he was to nearly all his people hateful and abominable to God. This is strong stuff and no mistake, and when we get to the end of Rufus you can judge for yourself what you think. But here's an immediate word of warning which I've given you before. All these chronicles were written by churchmen. And Rufus wasn't the kind of guy they liked. He had a relationship with the church which was at times pretty adversarial. 
Rufus was a warrior king like his father, and he gloried in all the attributes of the warrior. So that meant, for example, that he saw warfare as his natural function. His subjects were there simply to provide him with the money he needed to pay his mercenaries. Every minute not spent fighting, he was spent hunting. But unlike his father, he was not obviously pious. He scoffed at the church and had the warrior's general dislike of clerics. He had a habit of swearing by the holy face of Luca and was accused by churchmen, therefore, of being a blasphemer. It's not to say he didn't necessarily believe in God, but he had no great respect for the church. Overall, he was a flamboyant man and his court was a model of male fun rather than a model of piety. He had no children, and as we said before, he was probably homosexual in an age that didn't view that as an advantage. So put all of this together, and it's not difficult to see why the clerical chronicles had it in for him. But as we'll see, he had plenty of characteristics that made him a strong and effective leader. He was decisive, and he usually made the right decisions. He was brave. He honoured his father's memory. He had a clear view of the royal rights, and he made damn sure he protected them. And he was also a reasonably effective military leader. William's popularity wasn't helped by his close relationship throughout his reign with another colourful and unpopular character, Ranulf Flambard. His very name, which means flammable or incendiary, seems to make him a suitable servant for Red Rufus. Ranulf was a Norman of no great birth, who had been a successful clerk in the Conqueror's reign. He was probably born in 1060, and may well have been a leading figure in creating the Doomsday Book. Ranulf rose to great heights under William, and has been described as the first Chief Justiciar, a sort of medieval Prime Minister, or Head of the Administration of the Kingdom. Much of his unpopularity would come from his job, as the man who had to carry out Rufus's desire to get as much money from his subjects as possible, which is never a popular job, but one it has to be said that Ranulf seemed to gain unusual enjoyment from. William's accession to the throne of the second son was almost inevitably going to lead to trouble. There was bound to be some sympathy for Robert's position, and also the nobility didn't like the separation of Normandy and England. Most of them held land in both places, so it gave them real problems as to who they gave their primary loyalty to. If they gave it to William, Robert was likely to take their lands in Normandy, and vice versa. And also they recognised in Robert somebody they could push around much more easily than his father, while Rufus was to prove a chip off the old block. William did his best to head trouble off. His first priority was to get himself crowned quickly, which he did. His second was to seize the royal treasure at Winchester, which was packed full of William's eager tax gathering. He then carried out his father's wishes, actually, by distributing the contents of the treasury to churches and monasteries all over the kingdom. He then made a series of nice-sounding promises, not to tax as much as his father, to restore the laws of good King Edward, both of which he would completely ignore once he was secure on his throne. He must have thought Odo of Bayer would be a good potential ally. The conqueror had freed Odo on his death, and Rufus put him back into his position as Earl of Kent, but in this he miscalculated very badly. By the start of 1088, the wheels are already coming off, with a series of powerful nobles preparing to support Robert's claim to the throne, and it's quite possible that Odo was the instigator. The teams began to line up. In the blue corner, Rufus kept the loyalty of some of the big names, Hugh d'Avranche, the Earl of Chester, and William of Warren, the Earl of Surrey in particular, and most of the lesser nobles and most of the lesser nobles in the church kept faith with him. But against him rose a clutch of opponents, and very powerful men too. In the south, there was Odo, Roger of Mortain, and powerful Norman lords such as Robert of Belem and Eustace of Boulogne. You should remember a couple of these names. Odo of Bayer and Roger of Mortain were of course the extremely powerful half-brothers of William the Conqueror. 
Roger the Marcher Earl of Shrewsbury sat on the fence in another castle he had in Sussex, Arundel, and waited on events. Meanwhile in the west, the Mowbray brothers, Geoffrey and Robert, the Earl of Northumbria, were in revolt based on Bristol. Roger de Lacey and the Welsh marches captured Hereford, and William of St Calais, the Bishop of Durham, was also in revolt. But William showed he knew what he was about, while Robert failed to do the necessary. William moved quickly to secure the key centres of London, Dover and Hastings. He attacked Odo in Rochester, and Odo fled to Pevensey on the south coast where his mates were, waiting for help from Normandy. But Robert was a no-show, and the troops he sent were never able to land, so the southern rebels were trapped in Pevensey, and they were forced to come to terms with Rufus. At this point, William was not disposed to be too harsh. He had other rebels to deal with after all. Odo had to accept banishment and to hand over his castle at Rochester. But once he was back there, Odo gave it one more shot, and he closed the gates against the king. Rufus was now a seriously unhappy bunny, and he raised another army from the local English. The rest of the southern rebels thought better of trying again, and William was therefore able to force Odo to abandon Rochester and flee into exile, accompanied by the jeers of the English. One interesting little aside about this was that Rufus called out the English by appealing to an old Scandinavian term, declaring that any who did not support him would be declared nothing or outlaw. The last time this had happened was under Edward the Confessor. But it's mainly interesting here, actually, because it simply showed Rufus's cynical use of any available lever. There's no evidence whatsoever that the English gained anything from their loyalty. The collapse of the Southern Revolt took the wind out of the sails of the rest of the rebellious nobles. And by the autumn of 1088, England was firmly back in William's hands. The one exception was the Bishop of Durham, and his resistance is an interesting precursor to a dispute between the Crown and Church that will grow over the medieval period. The bishop claimed that he was subject only to church law and the papacy, and not to the king, and that the king's court therefore had absolutely no jurisdiction over him. This meant that the king's court apparently couldn't try him and take his land away for his rebellion against the king. This position is at least in part a consequence of the conqueror's decision to separate canon and lay law because every English precedent was against the bishop, and on this occasion Lanfranc, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and all the nobility stood by Rufus. The bishop even went as far as getting a papal bull, ordering Rufus to reinstate him as bishop, which Rufus simply ignored. But in reality, actually church law was on the bishop's side, and in future, claims like these were going to be much harder to resist. The mark of the strength of Rufus's reign was that he was to have only one more revolt by his nobles seven years later in 1095. The perpetrators were mainly also rebels from the 1088 revolt. Northumbria was the main cause of the problem this time. Robert Mowbray, the Earl of Northumbria, had illegally plundered four Norwegian trading vessels that had taken refuge in one of his ports, and Rufus demanded that he make restitution, and was ignored. Mowbray was a marcher lord. He saw himself as the king in his own lands, and wanted to be left alone to do his thing. So he got together with his Welsh marcher lords as well, the Earl of Shrewsbury, Roger, Le Roger de Lacey and William of Oo, and he cooked up a wild plan to replace Rufus on the throne of England with somebody else. Robert Mowbray felt pretty comfortable. He possessed in Bamborough the most impregnable of castles in England. Rufus marched north and he built a castle just outside Bamborough that he called Evil Neighbour, and he sat down and waited for Mowbray to do something stupid, which he duly did, trying to break out to retrieve his castle at Newcastle, and he was captured. 
Rufus then adopted a simple, if rather brutal, expedient of bringing Mowbray out in front of Bamborough and telling Mowbray's wife that she could keep the castle, in which case her husband would lose his eyes, or she could give up Bamborough, in which case Mowbray could keep them. This pretty much finished the entire revolt. Mowbray either spent the next 30 years in prison or ended up his life as a monk. The sources disagree. Roger of Shrewsbury was allowed to pay himself off with a massive fine of £3,000. William of probably came out of it worse. He tried to clear his name in trial by combat. Unfortunately, he lost the battle and as a result, he lost his wedding tackle. In 1088, Rufus had felt that he had to placate many of the rebellious nobles. But in 1095, he didn't feel like that at all and he was having none of it. Rufus' priorities were the traditional ones of the Norman kings and viewed in this light, he was a pretty effective ruler. His main aim was therefore to reunite England and Normandy and wrest Normandy from his brother's grip. Pretty much everything else was bent to this objective or was a distraction from it that had to be dealt with as quickly as possible. So revenue, for example, needed to be ruthlessly raised to pay for his wars. His frontiers with Wales and Scotland needed to be secured so he could concentrate on Normandy. The church needed to be kept firmly under control of the crown so that it didn't impact on the rights of the king to do exactly what he wanted. And in fact, all these things form the main themes of Rufus's 13-year reign. Church, the English frontiers and the struggle for Normandy. These themes are so clear that I'm going to break with my traditional approach and deal with Rufus thematically rather than chronologically, and we'll see how that goes. Let's start with that favourite of your Norman king, money. Rufus had a few sources of revenue, which he and his pan Ranulf Flambard exploited absolutely ruthlessly. A significant part of the royal revenue came from his own personal estates, his royal domain. They then exploited the traditional Old English routes, levying gelds that might raise in the area of 2400, for example. They also managed to make money out of the English duties of service and convert them into cash. A particularly radical example of this happened in 1090, when Rufus called out the third in preparation for an invasion to Normandy. When everybody was assembled, waiting to get on the ships and start the fighting, Ranulf, instead of loading them up, told them to pay him some money instead of fighting and go on home. Ranulf also exploited the old English duties of bridge work and fortress work when he constructed London's first stone bridge and the grand new Westminster Hall in 1099. Another source of revenue were the profits of justice. There's a continuing strand about the development of the implementation of justice throughout the medieval period. The obsession with justice is not just about the kings doing their duty to give their subjects good justice according to their coronation oath, though to be fair that was part of the reason. It was also about a demonstration of royal power over their aristocracy and people, but what got kings really excited was the money it produced. Justice in the form of fines was great profitable business. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And then there was the money that the king could make from his feudal rights. These were many and various. For example, the king claimed that he was due a payment when his vassals got married. Another was a kind of inheritance tax 
When a man died, his successor was required to buy his way into his inheritance, and this was known as relief. Lords could also give the king money instead of carrying out the military service they owed, and this was called shield money or scootage. The reality was that feudal armies were often largely made up of mercenaries paid for partly with this money, rather than our traditional view of the feudal army made up of the king's vassals. A really lucrative area to raise money was wardships. So if a man died when his children were too young to inherit, the lord had the right to look after those children before they came of age. They became his wards. The lord could manage the ward's estate and keep some of the revenue. They also had the right to marry the ward off. This gave them a powerful source of patronage. So a king could marry a rich heiress off to a powerful lord that he wanted to keep happy. Both the king and his lords often actually bought and sold the rights to lordships. Both the king and his lords often actually bought and sold the rights to these wardships for ready cash. Rufus applied these feudal rights to the church as well. He insisted that bishops and abbots owed him relief for their lands when they took over a new position. They scandalised the church, who saw themselves as absolutely exempt from these kind of temporal Jews. They were even more scandalised by what they saw as Rufus's exploitation of vacant church posts. And they had a point. After 1092, Rufus hardly replaced any abbots when posts became vacant. And most visibly, he kept hold of the estates of the Archbishop of Canterbury during the Archbishop's exile for three years, something we'll come to later. He did this because while these positions were vacant, he was able to manage their estates and gather the revenue to the crown. In fact, the church's fury was more than a bit overstated, but then the church did always love their privileges. All of this was a bit of a balancing act for the medieval king. His aristocracy recognised these rights, and in general, in fact, the real burden fell on the ordinary people. The peasantry and the small landowners were usually the ones who suffered from Rufus's revenue-raising efforts. But there were very few set prices, and it meant that there was a fine and unclear dividing line between the proper exercise of a king's rights and rapacious exploitation. A strong king like Rufus could get away with a lot, but a weak and over-greedy king like John soon came a cropper and suffered widespread noble revolt. So once he'd crushed the 1088 revolt, Rufus's great aim was to become the ruler of Normandy. And once he'd failed to win England, Robert Curtos's grip on Normandy was always going to be under threat. Robert was a far less effective ruler than his father and his brother, and the Norman nobles had immediately made hay once he took over. Robert's father had forced all his nobles to accept a ducal garrison in their castles. Now as soon as Robert took over, all the nobles chucked the ducal garrisons out of their castles, and that meant they could then do pretty much whatever they liked. In 1090, William consulted his vassals and decided to lay claim to Normandy. He started off by trying to create chaos by proxy. So, for example, once he'd made his claim, many Norman lords repudiated their fealty to Robert and gave it instead to William, and they were able to cause trouble. Rufus also tried to incite revolt in Rouen, but he was prevented notably by his youngest brother Henry. Although Henry had used the money his dad gave him to buy land in Normandy, he had made himself actually pretty unpopular with both of his brothers by fitting between the two of them, trying to extract maximum advantage for himself from their discord. But on this occasion, he helped Robert crush the Rouen revolt, personally throwing the leading burgess of the town from the tower of the city to his death. Henry, like Rufus, was a chip off the old block. So Rufus realised that if you want a job doing, you're just going to have to do it yourself. So in 1091, he crossed over to Normandy, in the north of the duchy, where his Norman supporters then came to swear loyalty to him. 
but both Rufus and Robert realised that neither of them had the strength to win this battle right now. So instead, they came to terms. They agreed that William could keep the fealty of the lords in Normandy who had come over to him, and in return, William would help Robert regain control of his part of the duchy, Robert having made such a horlicks of the whole thing. Both of them vented their fury, however, on Henry because of his double dealing. They agreed that when one of them died, England and Normandy would be united under the surviving brother, i.e. not Henry. And then they threw Henry out of Normandy. Henry went and sat in the Vexin looking for a way back. But although the two brothers then assembled the Norman barons in Caen to try and knock some heads together and get things sorted, William then had to rush over to England to cope with an invasion from the Scots. Things were apparently so much better between them that Robert went with him to keep him company. And Robert was just the kind of guy who liked a nice, simple war. Anything more complicated than that frankly made his head hurt. Three years later, though, in 1093, the brothers were back at each other's throats. It was William's fault, really, after the Scottish trouble had started. It was William's fault, basically. After the Scottish trouble had been sorted, he failed to come back and honour his side of the bargain and help Robert out in Normandy. So grumpily, Robert repudiated the treaty. By 1094, Rufus was therefore back in Normandy, but the war that followed favoured Robert, and was a low-key affair anyway. Besides which, Rufus then had to rush back to England again. He had a plan, though. He made friends with his little brother Henry this time, and with the idea that Henry would carry on the war in Normandy on his behalf. And so Henry was brought back into the fold, and on the right side, since a few years later, he'd be at the right place in the right time. But another two years later in 1095, still William was no further forward. Distractions at home and less than superb military leadership had frustrated his plans. And then the world changed. The Byzantine Emperor Alexius I Comnenus had asked for the Western help against the invading Seljuk Turks. And on the 27th of November, Pope Urban II preached his famous sermon which called all men to a crusade. There's no definitive text of the sermon left, but this version probably sums it up. Urban commanded, All people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the land of our friends. He then used a phrase that became known throughout the Christian world, Deus Volt, or God wills it. The crusade suited Robert right down to the ground. It was a simple, straightforward objective that he could get his head around. It offered the hope of adventure, plunder and glory. And it offered Urban's famous promise that everyone who took the cross would have immediate and complete remission of their sins. And it was impossible to be a Norman duke, frankly, and not have the odd sin knocking around. For Robert it was a heaven-sent opportunity, the start of a new life. So he met with William and the Pope's emissary and came to an agreement. William was to loan Robert 10,000 marks, and Robert was to give William Normandy and pledge for repayment. In September 1096 the deal was done, Robert set off, and William was the de facto ruler of Normandy. He wasn't officially the Duke, but it's near as damn it. So now, foolishly, I can't resist giving you a short history of the First Crusade. Obviously, the First Crusade has only got a limited amount to do with the history of England. But look, it's my podcast, so I get to choose what I do. There are maps on the website, historyofengland.typepad.com, to help with this bit. The tide of Islam had swept through the territories of the Byzantine Empire, carrying it to the Pyrenees and the edge of Anatolia. But since that time, Islam and Christendom had established a reasonable equilibrium. And then in 1071, 
the Seljuk Turks defeated the Byzantine at the absolutely crucial Battle of Manzikert. And although Byzantium survived, it critically weakened them, since they lost a large amount of the territory that had sustained them. But in fact, at the time of the First Crusade, the Islamic world was again divided, and Anatolia and the Holy Land was divided between a number of rulers. This significantly weakened their response to the Crusades when they came. On the other hand, the Christian world was also to show the extent of their own division throughout the whole of the Crusader period. The worlds of the Byzantine Empire and those of Western Christendom were massively different. A Byzantine, for their part, felt much more at home with the Turks than they did with the Boorish and Barbarian Franks. When they met the Byzantines, the Western Crusaders were impressed by the splendour of the palace and the quiet, polished manners of the courtiers, but it made them feel deeply uncomfortable and out of place, and they resented it. They reacted rather like children, and they became rude and aggressive. The Crusades did not in any way improve the relationship between Eastern and Western Christendom. However, Urban's appeal generated a wave of popular enthusiasm that was never quite matched by any of the subsequent Crusades. Some of the success probably horrified Urban. Thousands of ordinary people, unarmed and quite unprepared for war, were drawn to the campaign, led by a charismatic man called Peter the Hermit. Fired by enthusiasm, the so-called People's Crusade refused to wait for the better-prepared knights and set off. By August 1096, this crusade had been cut to pieces by the Turks, with the loss of tens of thousands of lives. The Prince's Crusade, as it was known, though, was to meet with greater success. There were many leaders like Robert for whom the crusade was an opportunity to win the position and land they needed, or maybe it just appealed to their sense of chivalry and piety, or indeed both. As it happens, the impact in England was pretty slight by comparison, it's likely that there were a number of English ships involved in transport and fighting, but none of the major barons appear to have responded. Most of the knights seem to have been drawn from northern France and Germany. By April 1097, an army of around 35,000 had gathered in Constantinople. Robert Curtis was a major figure in the leadership, which was led by French and German lords, notably three brothers, Geoffrey of Bouillon, Baldwin of Boulogne and Eustace of Boulogne. Robert of Flanders was there, Hugh, the brother of the King of France, and also Stephen of Bois, the father of our very own King Stephen of England. Now you might think Emperor Alexius would have been delighted to see all these fighting men willing to fight his enemies, but not a bit of it. When he asked for help, he was thinking maybe of a nice ship packed full of gold with which to buy mercenaries, that sort of thing. Not a bunch of uncouth, hairy northerners out to carve out a kingdom for themselves. He tried to give himself some insurance policy and he managed to persuade them to swear an oath of fealty to him and sent his generals to accompany him on their way. The Crusaders had first to get through the Sultanate of Rum before they could reach the Holy Land and their first test came at Nicaea which they retook from the Turks in May 1097 during which they drove off the attempt to relieve the city by the Turkish leader Arslan and this was followed in July with the Battle of Dorylaeum. The Crusaders had split into two detachments one of these was surprised and surrounded by the Turks, who fired arrows into the Crusader ranks from their horses. But despite killing many horses and footmen, the heavily armoured knights were pretty immune and able to hold out in a defensive ring until other detachments arrived in the Turkish flank and put the Turks to flight. At this point, the Turkish leader Arslan essentially decided this was a problem he didn't need, and he simply let the Crusaders carry on through his land unopposed. There then followed an eight-month siege of the city of Antioch, whose capture was absolutely essential if the Crusaders were to have a base for the attack on Jerusalem. Their forces were insufficient to properly blockade the city, though, and twice they had to fight off relief armies. By 1098, 
things were looking pretty desperate. Supplying the army was a nightmare, the local Muslim population was hostile, and many of the crusaders' horses had been killed. Some of the most influential crusader leaders had now left. One section had left and set up their own county, based on the city of Edessa. Stephen of Blois and his detachment had left completely, and now a new massive relief army was approaching the city. Quite frankly, things didn't look good. But before the army could arrive, a captain of the Turkish garrison was persuaded to betray the city. The crusaders gained entry and slaughtered all the inhabitants, Muslim and Christian alike. The relief army then arrived, so one week later the crusaders were themselves blockaded inside Antioch by the relief army. But this army was as divided as the crusaders, and when the crusader army attacked the Turks outside the wall of Antioch, large sections deserted, and the crusaders were victorious. Handily, one of the religious leaders had claimed to discover the Holy Lance, the very lance that had pierced the side of Christ, and this helped inspire the crusaders to victory. So after 12 months of infighting, dying from plague, and marching through the heat, in June 1099 a much reduced crusader army of maybe 12 to 15,000 men arrived before one of the great fortresses of the medieval world, Jerusalem. They had too few troops to blockade the city. The Turks had poisoned the wells outside the city and made sure no food was available to them. Despite the strength of the walls, the crusaders knew they had no choice but to take the city by storm. After failed assaults, the crusaders' position was again getting increasingly desperate with the news of another approaching Egyptian army. But then on the 13th of July, after three days of fasting and religious processions, the crusaders finally broke into the city. The result was an orgy of death and destruction, with the slaughter of most of the Muslim and Jewish population. The massacre shocked even the Christian world, but for the Muslim population it created a determination to drive these Franks out, and was always to stand in the way of attempts to work together and come to agreement. In August, the crusader victory at the Battle of Ascalon against the Egyptian army finally confirmed the new crusaders' states. The First Crusade established an extraordinary enclave of four completely unsustainable crusader states in the heartland of the Seljuk Empire. Outremer, as it was known, consisted of Jerusalem, Tripoli, Antioch and Edessa, and the Western presence was to last a close 200 years until the fall of Acre in 1291. Over eight further crusades followed, increasingly cynical and disruptive, none more so than the disastrous Fourth Crusade, which actually led to the sack and fatal weakening of Byzantium in 1204. But the idea of crusades spread to Spain, the Baltics and Eastern Europe. Our hero, meanwhile, Robert Curtos, played a full part in most of the major events of the crusade, including the assault on Jerusalem and the Battle of Ascalon. It was even suggested that he may have been offered the crown of Jerusalem, and while this is probably not so, he certainly won renown and was one of the main leaders. After Ascalon, Robert, along with many of the crusaders, started the return journey home. So meanwhile, back at home, William was taking control of Normandy and seeking to reassert the control Robert had lost on the borders. In November 1097, he crossed over the Channel to fight off pressure from Helias of Maine and the French from the Vexin. It was not the world's most glorious campaign, it has to be said, but it gave him at least a B+. He retook the capital of Maine, Le Mans, and came to agreement with Helias and his support of the Count of Anjou. He was able to parade unopposed through the French Vexin, though he failed to take any towns or castles. It didn't resolve any long-standing issues, but he restored the territorial integrity of Normandy to the situation under his father, and that in itself was no mean achievement, and a good deal better than Robert had been able to do. So for the moment, Rufus had achieved his aim. 
Who knows what was going to happen when Robert came back from the crusade, but as it turned out, that's not going to be Rufus's problem. Next time, we'll look at Rufus's troubled relationship with his church and the continuing struggle with the Welsh and Scots and lead up to the reign of the most successful of the Norman kings, Henry I. So thanks very much for listening, everybody, and sorry about the First Crusade thing, and um, hopefully you'll join me next time as well. Listen to this ACAST show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.